Hello, and welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 213th episode, our guest is Ray E. Boomhauer. Ray E. Boomhauer is senior editor of the Indiana Historical Society Press. He is editor of the IHS's quarterly popular history magazine, Traces of Indiana and Midwestern History. Boomhauer has been with the Society since 1987. A native of Mishawaka, Indiana, Boomhauer graduated from Indiana University in 1982 with degrees in journalism and political science. He received his master's degree in U.S. history from Indiana University, Indianapolis, in 1995. Before joining the Society staff, he worked in public relations for the Indiana State Museum and as a reporter for two Indiana Daily newspapers. Along with numerous articles for Traces, the Indiana Magazine of History, and other history periodicals, Boomhauer is the author of the books Jacob Pyatt Dunn Jr., A Life in History and Politics, 1855-1924, to from Indiana Historical Society, 1997. The Country Contributor, The Life and Times of Juliet V. Strauss, from the Guild Press of Indiana, 1998. Destination Indiana, Travels Through Hoosier History, IHS 2000. But I Do Clamor, May Wright Sewall A Life, 1844-1920, Guild Press, 2001. One Shot, The World War II Photography of John A. Buscemi, from IHS Press, 2004. Gus Grissom, The Lost Astronaut, from IHS Press, in 2004. The Sword and the Pen, A Life of Lou Wallace, from IHS Press, in 2005. A Soldier's Friend, A Life of Ernie Pyle, from IHS Press, 2006. Fighting for Equality, A Life of Mary Wright Sewall, from IHS Press, 2007. Robert F. Kennedy and the 1968 Indiana Primary, from Indiana University Press in 2008. Fighter Pilot, The World War II Career of Alex Vrykou from IHS Press in 2010. The People's Choice, Congressman Jim Johns of Indiana from IHS Press in 2013. John Barlow Martin, A Voice for the Underdog from IU Press in 2015. Dispatches from the Pacific, The World War II Reporting of Robert L. Sherrod in 2017. Indiana Originals, Hoosier Heroes and Heroines, from History Press in 2018. And Mr. President, A Life of Benjamin Harrison, from IHS Press in 2018. His latest book, Richard Tregatskis, Reporting Under Fire from Guadalcanal to Vietnam, was published in November 2021 by the University of New Mexico Press. And now on to the show. Uh, I'm Ray Boomhauer. Uh, currently, I'm a senior editor at the Indiana Historical Society Press, and I've also, over the years, published uh, a number of books, uh, a, num- uh, a lot concerning Indiana history, but I've also branched out to other fields of interest as well. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about your background, though, because uh, you started out being a newspaper reporter. Is that correct? I was trained as a, a journalist when I was in high school, when I first became interested in journalism. I was editor of our high school newspaper at the Mishawaka High School, the All Told, and uh, really got interested in maybe pursuing a career as a reporter. And I was kind of guided that way because the summer between my junior year and senior year in high school, 
uh, I attended a high school journalism institute uh, at Indiana University in Bloomington, uh, which was quite helpful in uh, guiding me as a young high school journalist. But it also uh, made me fall in love with Indiana University and uh, really went to go there and study journalism. And uh, I was able to do so at uh, Ernie Pyle Hall. And uh, that kind of launched my uh, secondary career as a chronicler of war correspondence. But we'll talk about that later. Sure. So when I was at IU, uh, I um, not only got a degree in journalism and political science, but also worked three years on the Indiana Daily Student newspaper. And so I was able to use that experience and uh, get a job after I graduated in 1982 as a young reporter on a small daily newspaper in Rensselaer, Indiana. Uh, that's in Jasper County, in the northwest part of the state. And if you want to be a writer, there's no greater training than to be a journalist on a small weekly or small daily newspaper because you get all kinds of opportunities to write about uh, different kinds of subjects. So I covered everything from uh, the police beat, uh, city council meetings, uh, going to the high school to cover girls volleyball and take photographs as well as write the story about the, the outcome of the game, uh, go to the county fair and uh, uh, cover the results uh, from uh, all the livestock competitions and also get a chance to uh, ride in a uh, chase vehicle as a hot air balloon uh, was launched and we had to go track it down and uh, fires and, and all kinds of activities. And I really uh, learned more about drainage than I ever wanted to know uh, <laughs> because of all the agriculture's big industry in Jasper County sure. and uh, drainage is a big issue. So I learned a lot about that. Uh, was there for about seven or eight months, unfortunately got laid off, but was able to rebound and get a job on a uh, larger newspaper at the Anderson Herald and uh, worked there for two and a half years. I got to cover the education beat as well as city hall and politics. Uh, but I also discovered when I was uh, a journalist that it's not the highest paying field mm. out there, particularly in the newspaper industry. And I realized that early on when I was in Rensselaer, when I was covering a uh, free surplus government cheese giveaway in the mm -hmm. 1980s, this was a big thing. Uh, from time to time, people whose income, um, you know, reached a certain level could stop by and pick up some free surplus cheese. And I realized that uh, my income level, uh, I was able to do so. So mm. I kind of <laughs> uh, made me realize that maybe I should get into uh, another field. <laughs> so after about uh, three and a half, four years in that, I turned to uh, public relations uh, got a job at the Indiana State Museum in Indianapolis uh, at the old State Museum, which is in the old Indianapolis City Hall. But in 1987, uh, I went over to the Indiana Historical Society, uh, which is a statewide nonprofit uh, historical organization. Uh, first in public relations, and then later in uh, 1999, I became the editor of its quarterly popular history magazine, Traces of Indiana and Midwestern History. So I was able to work on that and also to uh, do some uh, editorial work in the Society Press's uh, 
publications program, uh, working on a variety of books about Indiana history. And during all this time, I was able to, uh, on my own time and sometimes as part of my job at the Historical Society, uh, write some books, uh, particularly a lot of uh, books about notable people from Indiana, uh, writing about uh, astronaut Gus Grissom, uh, Ernie Pyle, uh, the famous World War II correspondent, uh, Lou Wallace, uh, the famous Civil War general and writer of uh, Ben-Hur, and uh, a variety of other people who made an impact not only on Indiana, uh, but I think uh, the nation as well. Right. And uh, what would your advice for people that are, you know, in that journalism realm that kind of, you know, working on shorter projects, obviously, you know, you obviously made that transition to working on books, but, you know, how, like, just see, it seems like so much information to synthesize in a book. And obviously an article is a finite thing, especially for a newspaper, but how did you find that tra transition to be from, from kind of one type of writing to another? Well, I found it a little easier, I think, than, than uh, many people who might come out of just out of college and uh, want to get involved in uh, the academic field or into uh, writing longer magazine pieces. And the fact that I had the experience in meeting daily deadlines, uh, which really uh, focuses your attention on a particular project, mm -hmm. because every day you're supposed to pound out a certain amount of stories. So uh, meeting deadlines has never been a problem for me, and I found it freeing to write longer magazine style pieces. I was helped on early on uh, by the um, uh, first editor of Traces magazine, Kent Calder, uh, who was looking for writers to produce articles for Traces during his early years when it first started back in 1989. Uh, so kind of, I kind of jumped in. I, I always loved history, and I had this desire to be a writer. So he encouraged me and kind of trained me into how to craft uh, a longer form style of journalism uh, that is the magazine article. And I was able to produce a number of articles for him, and I've kind of kept it up over the years and realized that uh, I needed some more background uh, on history and how to write history. So went to Indiana University uh, at uh, Purdue University in Indianapolis and got my master's in US history. Uh, so I was able to get some uh, help in uh, how to do uh, an academic style of writing that's helped me with my book projects over the years. So both of those, uh, Kent's guidance and also uh, what I learned at uh, IUPUI in the history department there um, have uh, set the stage for my subsequent writing career. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a, a little bit of this and, and a little bit of that. And I always encourage writers uh, when they approach a subject, you know, pick something, a subject that they're going to be interested in because if it's a magazine article, it might take months. If it's a book project, it's going to take years. And you've got to be able to uh, stick at it and picking something that uh, is going to spark your interest and also keep you intrigued as you do the uh, grunt work that's required of any kind of writing uh, mm -hmm. is very important. And that's something that I always encourage our writers to do. What do you weigh as far as like primary sources? And obviously, you know, I've read your, uh, I've read two of your books now with uh, Gus Grissom, and I'm also reading the Richard Trigaskis book. Mm -hmm. um, you obviously 
have delved deep into the historical record for both of those, but obviously you have to do some kind of, you know, on the ground reporting with those as well. How do you balance the primary sources with uh, interviews and things like that? Well, I was lucky with, uh, in the case of Gus Grissom, uh, when I did that project uh, back in the early 2000s, that individuals who knew Gus were still alive and Mm -hmm. were around to be interviewed. So you have to do both uh, if you're writing about a contemporary figure uh, in history. And in Gus's case, I was able to go uh, seek out the primary sources at the uh, uh, Johnson Space Center uh, in Texas and also the Kennedy Space Center in, in Florida. And while I was doing uh, uh, those research visits, I was able to coordinate uh, individual interviews with people who knew Gus uh, in Florida, uh, Sam Bedenfield, who was a longtime uh, NASA employee, knew him well, uh, was uh, there after the Apollo 1 fire, and so uh, was a, a great resource. Uh, his uh, widow, Betty Grissom, uh, was still alive and living in uh, Houston, Texas. So I was able to go down there when I visited Johnson Space Center and uh, talk to her in, in her condominium there. So the, that kind of uh, face-to-face uh, meetings with people who knew your subject uh, are invaluable. Uh, they really give you uh, details that uh, um, make readers, I think, uh, want to turn the page, which is uh, the main thing of, of any writer. You want mm. the reader to turn the page and, and get to the next page and the next chapter and get all the way to the end and hold their uh, attention in, until that book is finished. And also because of Gus was, you know, raised in Indiana, it was easy for me to go down to Mitchell, you know, walk the streets uh, that he walked, uh, meet with people who knew him when, when he was a younger man before fame hit him, when he was just, uh, you know, a, a Boy Scout, uh, a high school student and Bill Head and talk about the, their uh, adventures uh, as young men in a small Indiana town. And so... Um, Getting to know people like that uh, just makes uh, your job much easier and really helps bring uh, the dry documents you might have from official sources, bring that information to life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I grew up in, in Mitchell, so obviously I was very familiar with uh, the Gus Grissom story uh, growing up here. And, and the people you uh, interviewed, the, the surnames of the people are very mm-hmm. familiar to me. Uh, your, your Caudels, your Grissoms, right. your <laughs> these, are, these are all very familiar. Um, but for people that obviously aren't familiar with Gus Grissom, maybe if you could explain a little bit more about who he was and why he was important in the space program and, and kind of that first initial wave there. Well, early on uh, in the development of of the space race with the United States trying to catch the Soviet Union, uh, which launched the first artificial satellite Sputnik into space, uh, there was a great uproar uh, after the news uh, of that triumph by the Soviet Union. And a lot of Americans uh, were shocked about uh, that fact. Uh, They couldn't believe it. You know, here's this country we're in this competition with uh, the communists. And uh, they can't even build a decent tractor or refrigerator, and yet they beat this technologically, so-called technologically advanced country, uh, the United States, into space. Uh, So there was almost a panic that set in. There was a whole movement that maybe we're behind in 
in science and so there was a greater emphasis on science education there was a movement to let's you know beat the russians and get the first man in space and so uh, gus grissom was one of the ranks of the uh, uh, numerous test pilots who uh, volunteered to uh, uh, have their names possibly picked to be one of the men uh, to be an original astronaut and he was lucky enough to be one of the original seven uh, mercury astronauts so Here's a kid from a, a small town in Indiana uh, who was, uh, you know, in, involved um, uh, in uh, mechanical engineering at Purdue University as a young student on a partial GI Bill, joined the Air Force uh, with his young wife, Betty, and, and uh, you know, went uh, around the country uh, as a uh, young officer. And uh, here he's achieving uh, national and international fame uh, by becoming uh, an original seven astronaut. And it's something that, that never really sat well with Gus. You know, he was not uh, used to being hounded by the press and always tried to uh, avoid them if he could. And one of the great stories I uncovered when I was doing uh, my book that uh, uh, he uh, tried to, uh, on some of his visits as an astronaut to some of the contractors were building elements of the space uh, uh, space program. He would, uh, to avoid reporters when he landed at the airport, he decided to don a disguise, which uh, a floppy hat and a dark pair of sunglasses. And he uh, put on this disguise and asked his good friend, Wally Sharar what he thought. And Wally said, well, you look like Gus Grissom and a pair of sunglasses and a floppy hat. But <laughs> Luckily for Gus, he, uh, it did work. He, he was very pleased about uh, avoiding the, the glare of the press, which is he was never very comfortable with. was always much more at ease dealing with uh, the technology, the engineering aspects of the space program. And um, something that really uh, grabbed my attention into doing a book on Gus was an early experience that I had as a young boy. Uh, I was always fascinated by uh, the space program. I remember our elementary school teacher, you know, rolling in the old portable television into our classroom uh, whenever there was a, a launch from Cape Kennedy and watching uh, live uh, on TV as they were launched into space. I remember staying up, uh, you know, to see Neil Armstrong take those first steps uh, on the moon and, uh, you know, take one small step for a man and one giant leap for mankind. And so I was very excited when my father took my brothers and I to a trip to uh, Mitchell, Indiana, uh, to visit Springmill State Park. And the highlight for me was the Gus Grissom Memorial. And you could actually get to see a piece of equipment that went into space. And they had on display there, of course, the Gemini 3 spacecraft, the unsinkable Molly Brown. And uh, when I was younger back then, the memorial maybe wasn't as uh, strict as it is today. But mm -hmm. today it's behind lucite glass and you can't even touch it. But back then it was open and you could, you know, reach in and touch some of the yep. instruments. And I got uh, a picture of me very young sitting in that thing. So, yes, I remember that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so as someone who was uh, always very interested in the space program, you know, that was just uh, a highlight uh, of my youth and I think uh, that memory of that really inspired me to to write about Gus and his life. And I think I can say that I'm the only, might be one of the few people who's actually touched 
both the Gemini 3 and the Liberty Bell 7 spacecraft. Mm. Uh, it was when they um, uh, restored the Liberty Bell 7 after Kurt Newport mm -hmm. found it in 1999, brought it up. It was taken to the Kansas Cosmosphere for uh, restoration work, mm -hmm. and uh, they turned it uh, shortly afterward. And it was at the uh, Children's Museum here in, in Indianapolis uh, as part of an exhibition. And, um, and my wife and I went to see the exhibition and somehow we ended up uh, the Liberty Bell 7, the actual spacecraft was at the end of the exhibit. Mm. And uh, after all these different displays at the at the entrance, but we went in the wrong way, went in and saw the spacecraft first. And so there's no one around. And mm. uh, I hate to say it, but you weren't supposed to touch it. But I did have a tiny little touch. of. <laughs> I mean, you got to. I mean, couldn't, couldn't help myself. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, speaking of which, uh, you know, that leads me to what I was going to ask you about is that growing up, uh, I always heard how much people hated the book and the movie, The Right Stuff, and uh, which in preparation to talk for you, I talked to you, I finally went and read the book and watched the movie. Um, and I actually have, I didn't know if you knew, they have a, uh, on Disney Plus, there's even a new version of it. I don't know if you've seen that, where it's like a mini series uh, that they did. It's like a new uh, retelling of, of that book. Uh, yes, I've heard about that. I okay. haven't had an opportunity to yeah. uh, to view those programs, but I've right. read both the, the book and seen the, the yeah. movie. And I was, you know, I think Tom Wolf did a great job in capturing, uh -huh. um, you know, the essence of uh, the astronauts and, and how lionized they were and how important they were. Mm -hmm. And I think he does um, not do uh, Gus as dirty. I I think mm. the movie does. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, both Wolf and Kauf Phil Kaufman, who were the mm -hmm. director of the Right Stuff movie, I think were. Uh, fascinated not by uh, uh, the uh, astronauts, but uh, by um, um, the other hero of, sure. of that time period, uh, the guy who broke uh, the sound barrier. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so he was, he was their hero and not the astronauts. And um, I think probably for dramatic effect played up um, the whole thing that you know gus was had screwed the pooch and had panicked somehow mm. and had uh, you know been the cause of the uh, premature hatch mm -hmm. uh, um, ejection and he, he was to blame but uh if you look at you know the the writing during the time and if you go through and, and look at all all the information it's pretty uh well known that you know it was not gus's fault he didn't panic and somehow blow the hatch before he um he should have. And uh, I think the best explanation that uh, I uncover when I was doing uh, my research, and there's other information that's come out now, uh, George Leopold, who wrote uh, another biography of, of Gus for uh, the Purdue University Press, has been working with another individual, and they've looked at uh, movies and film uh, of the time period, and they've come up with new theories about why the hash exploded when it did. Um, but uh, when I was uh, doing my research, I came across uh, uh, some information by a NASA individual, um, was someone involved in the program. He said the problem was that Gus got too far ahead on the checklist, that uh, he was trying to do too good of a job. And he had uh, taken off kind of the safety uh, on the uh, 
hatch uh, mechanism that triggered the explosive bolts that, you know, that blew the hatch off uh, before he should have, before uh, hmm. the helicopter, act. he was supposed to wait till the helicopter actually hooked on to the spacecraft and started lifting up. And then he was supposed to take off the safety switch and then trigger the hatch, but he got too far ahead on the checklist and uh, did it before he should have. And just taking off that safety uh, tr uh, mechanism might've been enough just bobbing up and down in the surf to blow the hatch before it should have. So mm -hmm. I've always someone who's kind of um, seen Gus as some taking the blame when, when he shouldn't. And, and I think both the, the book and, and more so, I think the movie is mm -hmm. planted that in the nation's uh, consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, one of the reasons why I wrote the book was kind of as, as a um, answer to, to, that, to the book and the movie. I think at the beginning, uh, when the astronauts were first named, they perhaps got a little too much credit for, you know, before they really did anything. Mm -hmm. uh, they were lionized by the press, of course. Yeah. Which you, you can think, you know, it's no big mystery. Why? Because, you know, we're in this, uh, race with we, this enemy of ours, the Soviet Union, and so we need heroes in in this battle with the mm -hmm. communist communists. And the astronauts were picture perfect uh, for that. Uh, so perhaps they got a little bit more press than they should have before they actually, you know, had done anything. Uh, but I think then uh, over the years, with the distrust in government, the, the, you know, the Vietnam War. Uh, and uh, with the government lying as it did, perhaps Hoover got a little more cynical mm. uh, about heroes like like the astronauts, and so you have a reaction with you know the right stuff of both the book and the movie. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a middle ground. Uh, that's why I wrote the book is to say no, these guys did make a real contribution, uh, particularly Gus, who stayed in the program when a lot of the other Mercury astronauts for one reason or the other left the program. Mm -hmm. you know, if Gus had been responsible for the Mercury mishap, there's no way I think that uh, NASA would have selected him mm. to test out a new generation of spacecraft as it did with the flight of Gemini 3, which was the transition you know, uh, program between Mercury and Apollo, which was the uh, program that uh, took uh, the Americans to the moon and also, you know, select him for testing out uh, the Apollo spacecraft mm -hmm. uh, that uh, went so uh, dramatically wrong with, with the Apollo one fire. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'm sure Chuck Yeager and John Glenn must've loved the movie. I mean, they come out smelling <laughs> right. really well, especially since John Glenn I read was running for president right around the same time the movie came out. So yeah, that was a that was an interesting aspect. You have yeah, uh, John Glenn, who's in this movie and mm -hmm. uh, also in, in the book, and here he is running for the Democratic uh, nominee yeah, right. for, for president. Exactly. At the same time, for sure. Uh, but I actually, you know, I you know, having read your, I actually read your book first, and then I read the Tom Wolf book, and then saw the movie. So I actually felt like I was able to have more of a remove seeing it just mm -hmm. as a piece of art. You know, I this isn't a documentary. You know what I mean? This is like, like you said, it's the feeling of what was going on and, and less about, you know, the strictly factual basis. Um, but obviously that's literary nonfiction, right? They have right. a certain style that you're not really going for. Like Tom Wolfe is 
saying dialogue that there's no way Tom Wolf could have known and like internal thoughts that, you know, he's obviously constructing based on outside knowledge, but it's like right. you as a historian aren't, aren't in that position where you can just, you know, manufacture dialogue that, that you don't have any basis for. Tom so. Wolf is, is, is a great writer. Oh a yeah. Great, great <laughs> proponent of the uh, new journalism, but he mm -hmm. has a little more freedom, I think, than, than uh, a historian or a writer uh, like myself has. Sure. And um, I less always want less exclamation marks in your less, writing. I that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot, lot less exclamation marks, that's for sure. Uh, and one of the intriguing aspects I found when I was doing my book and, and writing about uh, kind of looking into uh, how the movie The Right Stuff was made, that uh, originally uh, there was a famous screenwriter who was going to work on the movie, William mm -hmm. Goldman who did, of course, The Princess Bride, all, all the president's uh, right. men, and a lot of other uh, Academy Award-winning screenplays. And um, in his book, uh, when he talks about his experience uh, with the movie, you know, he did all kinds of research and really wanted to focus on uh, the astronauts and how they got to, to where they were, you know, when they were selected as astronauts or what happened to them. But that was not the um, vision that the director, Phil Kaufman, had. He wanted to focus more on Jaeger, and he was the real hero uh, of the movie in, in his eyes. And so mm -hmm. the astronauts kind of took a back seat, and Goldman dropped out of the project. And I wondered if there was a different director, uh, and Goldman had stayed in. You know, the movie might have been totally, totally different, mm -hmm. might not have had the um, stylistic impact uh, that uh, the right stuff did with Kaufman as director. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a brilliantly shot movie. It's, oh, yeah. It's great scenes in it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's uh, quite a good movie, uh, but it might have had a different tone altogether if Goldman had stayed in the project. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And with it, going back to the Hatch thing, they definitely don't come out, and also in the book, don't come out and say that he's responsible for it. We no. don't see him hit the switch or whatever, but they definitely heavily imply that he was at fault. And uh, you know, right. they definitely make him the heel of the movie. You know, for <laughs> for a lot of it. So yeah. And uh, I, you know, Gus was tough. He he could you know mm -hmm. he could take it if he if he was still alive mm -hmm. but the person i always felt sorry for a bit was was betty oh yeah the way that she was portrayed in oh the movie. yeah and i think um she comes off uh, very mm. badly in it yes. and you know with her uh, the actress who plays her kind of has a almost a breakdown on screen and always mm -hmm. always intrigued me because you know she it seemed to make her in the movie once say, well, you know, she wants to go to the White House to visit yeah. Jackie. That was her big right. thing. Mm -hmm. Well, she, you know, in real life, she and the other astronaut wives had already been mm. when Alan Shepard was honored for right. his first flight. Uh, all the astronauts went to the White House. Mm -hmm. All the astronauts' wives went along. So she had already been there. So mm -hmm. uh, why they made that a big thing in the movie, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah. But I don't really, you know, I, the the things that people got mad about with his portrayal, I also don't know what it really matters that he, you know, would have lost the craft anyway. The more I think about it, because it's not a time in the space program where they reused the capsules anyway. 
And I guess they want the like data or the equipment or whatever, but uh, it's not like they were going to refly that up into space, right? I mean, that was lost, sure, but it, what was it just going to end up in a museum somewhere eventually anyway, right? I mean, exactly. And two, you had to look at it, you know, it was just a repeat basically of Shepard's suborbital flight. Mm -hmm. And NASA was already moving on, you know, they wanted to get into, you know, the third mission was going to be the orbital flight. That John Glenn eventually did. Um, so um, it had already uh, been uh, achieved a lot of press attention, you know, at, with mm -hmm. Alan Shepard being first. And this is just another repeat of that flight. So it's going to get less attention uh, in the media anyway. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, losing uh, that spacecraft did not hurt the program at no. all as it yeah. was going going forward so sure uh, and people forget too how close gerson came to actually dying in that accident yeah you know he was while all this activity was going around trying to save the spacecraft um you know he's sinking lower mm -hmm. <laughs> lower in the water and trying to get their attention that right you know, i'm actually drowning here you yeah know, pick me up out of the water so. yeah exactly and i like when the, in the movie when they're showing the newsreel it's like and he says save the craft first it's like that's not what he's saying no, no. <laughs> pick him up out hey. of the water like that's what he wants yep. out <laughs> i'm in trouble here i like uh, appreciate a little help if you yeah 100 percent. um now there was one part near the end of the book that you you do mention that i hadn't heard before and, and you kind of just mentioned it because i'm sure you had to but the there was a star magazine article in which i believe his son said that he thought that there was some uh, business with the uh, the thing that eventually killed him being some uh, conspiracy theory about him uh, re revenge for him losing the craft or something like that. It, as a historian, how do you place that in context to the rest of the story? Because obviously Star Magazine isn't the most necessarily reputable thing, but it was out in the public and it received some attention. So how do you weigh that with uh, other stuff? And was that something anyone said to you personally? No one ever mentioned it to, okay. to me personally. Is never in, in any, any of the official record, and I mm -hmm. don't know why uh, his son decided to write an article uh, right. like that. Uh, I know there's always been a lot of uh, uh, drama sometimes between uh, the Grissom family and, mm -hmm. and, and NASA over the years, uh, and you know Betty always you know had some hard things to say about mm -hmm. NASA management, uh, but you have to take uh, you know. A really you know close eye at allegations like that and sure. just shoot them down because uh, they're they're far out of the the uh, realm of reality mm -hmm. uh, absolutely it gets, gets it into fiction and you have to look at uh, at the facts of the case yeah understandable yeah. um now moving on to your uh, we mentioned your uh, war correspondent uh, books how many books have you written about war correspondence at this point well, uh, with the uh, publication in November of my uh, book on uh, Richard uh, Tregascus, that's what I consider the end of my war correspondent trilogy. Ah, okay. <laughs> and it, it all started uh, when I wrote uh, for the Indiana Historical Society Press uh, a number of years ago, a, a, a biography of Ernie Pyle, uh, mm -hmm. the famous uh, war correspondent and columnist from uh, Dana, Indiana. And uh, I had always uh, been fascinated by, by his life because, of course, going to Indiana University, if you're involved in journalism at that time when I was uh, going to IU from 1978 to 1982, all the journalism 
classes and department uh, was housed in a building named in his honor, Ernie Pyle Hall, uh, which is right next to the Indiana Memorial Union. And you went, went in and climbed up to the second floor. If you went to your left, uh, there's this, there was a lounge area that had on display uh, memorabilia from his life. I think there was a citation from the Pulitzer Prize uh, that he won. Uh, there might have been, I think, one of his uh, portable typewriters as well. Um, and uh, so Ernie Pyle was someone uh, who was always kind of put on a pedestal for if you were a student at any university and was involved in journalism. So I always was intrigued by him. And when I worked at the Indiana State Museum uh, at that time, it had a number of historic sites that it administered uh, all over the state. And one of them was the Ernie Pyle State Historic Site in Dana, Indiana. Uh, so I got to visit there, got to know the uh, curator, Evelyn Hobson at the time, wrote some brochure copy about him. And so I was always fascinated by his life and uh, was able to uh, write about it uh, in, in the youth biography series for the Indiana Historical Society Press. Uh, and from that led to a, uh, a more academic book for Indiana University Press uh, about another wartime correspondent, uh, Robert Sherrod, who was kind of the Ernie Pyle of the Marine Corps in the Pacific Theater. You know, Ernie was known for his uh, columns about uh, the average GI in uh, North Africa, uh, Sicily, Italy, and also uh, in Europe, and later went to the Pacific and was killed there during the invasion of Okinawa. But Sherrod uh, was a reporter for uh, Time Life magazine and uh, went with the Marines on their drive across the uh, Central uh, Pacific, uh, was involved in the uh, Battle of Terror, a very bloody uh, three-day affair. Uh, he was on the ground uh, with the Marines and wrote a uh, best-selling book uh, about his experience and then uh, continued on with them uh, to uh, Iwo Jima and Okinawa and was there with Ernie Pyle to report on that last great battle of the Pacific War. So I was able to write a book about his wartime experiences. Mm. And I figured, well, uh, two down, why not write a third <laughs> and, you know, call it my war correspondent uh, uh, trilogy. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking for people to consider. And I had read uh, Guadalcanal Diary mm -hmm. uh, when I was in high school. I always had an interest in World War II and in partic particular, the Pacific Theater. Uh, because I was just intrigued by the, the vast distances involved and just the very uh, bloody fighting uh, that went on between the Japanese and American forces uh, in the Pacific. And um, so I thought of Richard uh, Tregascus. And then in doing more research, I learned that uh, we shared a birthday. Oh, wow. Both are born on November 20th. I said, well, uh, that's fate. I have to write <laughs> a, a book about his his, his wartime experiences uh, during the war. And I'm glad I did because I'm just always amazed by the wide range of uh, what he did during the war. Uh, you know, starting out in the Pacific and then moving on uh, after a number of operations, including his time on Guadalcanal uh, to be there for the invasion of Sicily uh, on the ground there. Uh, going, moving on uh, to the uh, invasion of Italy, uh, where uh, his luck finally ran out, and he was actually wounded very severely by German shell fire. 
and for a time had lost the use of his right arm and, and, and leg and uh, lost the, uh, couldn't really speak well, had to kind of relearn how to do that and how to write. But uh, at that time, even Ernie Pyle, who paid him a visit when he was in the evacuation hospital, said, you know, if I had uh, done all he had done, you know, I would have uh, said, you know, that's it. I'm going to go home and uh, rest on my laurels uh, forever. But uh, Tregaskis went home, uh, got a metal plate put in his head and uh, went off back into combat and uh, returned to the European theater for the breakout from Normandy, uh, was in for the uh, breakthrough into Germany, was involved in a very intense street fighting uh, going on in the uh, capture of the German city of Aachen. And uh, after that, you know, had really had enough, he thought, and went back to the United States. And uh, for all these earlier activities, he'd been a reporter for the International News Service, which is a, a wire service agency, kind of the third rank behind the Associated Press and uh, United Press. But uh, the editors of a national magazine, the Saturday Evening Post, wanted him to go back to the Pacific to be there for uh, the end of the campaign against the Japanese, uh, wanted him to write a series called uh, The Road to Tokyo and uh, asked him, you know, well, do you really want to go? And he said, uh, I really don't want to, but I think I have to. And so he went back to the Pacific uh, with a crew of a B-29 bomber uh, flying off from the United States and making it eventually to Guam, uh, their base there, and flying on five uh, bombing missions against uh, Japan. And uh, after that was uh, serving on uh, uh, USS Ticonderoga, an aircraft carrier was involved in some uh, final um, strikes against uh, the Japanese home islands themselves and Japanese naval bases there and uh, was there when finally uh, the war ended. And so it was just an, an amazing life and one that I thought should uh, be better known by people uh, for all of his, uh, his uh, wartime uh, experiences and his time uh, with a variety of troops uh, overseas. So mm -hmm. I was able to write that book and it was published uh, this past November by the University of New Mexico Press. Yeah. Uh, have you ever thought of being a war correspondent yourself? I mean, after writing about all these war correspondents? <laughs> I'm not sure I could do it. Uh, me, just, me either. <laughs> and of course, uh, looking back at it, um, the individuals who are doing all this war, uh, war reporting, both men and women, mm -hmm. uh, had a lot to deal with that we wouldn't understand uh, these mm -hmm. days. And just getting their uh, pieces back uh, to their home offices was a, a difficult uh, journey to take in getting uh, their dispatches uh, read by people uh, back home in the United States. They had to worry about transmission. They had to worry about censorship from, from military uh, authorities. Uh, they were dealing with the same kind of strains of combat uh, that a lot of the fighting men were. Um, the, better, the better reporters were at least, um, uh, I think, Ernie Pyle, Sherrod, and Tregaskis, all three did not want to be known as what were called communique commandos, you know, reporters who stayed behind uh, safely back at headquarters and just uh, took the canned handouts from uh, the general's public relations officers and, and turned that in. Uh, they wanted to be uh, as close to the action as they possibly could 
and getting their stories and getting the details of what the actual uh, combat situation was like for men at the front lines. And uh, so I was always ad admire them. And that's something I don't know if I could handle. And uh, particularly uh, the uh, tough, tough conditions on uh, places like Guadalcanal that mm -hmm. uh, Tricascus uh, had to experience. And uh, every night being under fire by uh, not only Japanese troops, but the mm -hmm. Japanese naval forces uh, uh, offshore enduring uh, those kinds of uh, conditions, not only uh, combat conditions, but conditions of uh, the climate as well, uh, disease, you know, inferior food, all that, and somehow persevering and coming out of it in uh, writing a best-selling book uh, about his time there. And I'm always fascinated by the fact that he did this, you know, at a very young age, he was only 25, Right. Uh, when he first went into combat and it's just an impressive uh record uh he goes out you know he's writing as the reporter covering the uh, uh u.s naval uh, fleet in the in the pacific at hawaii and his very first combat operation that he sent on he sent off in april 1942 on a task force that accompanies the doolittle raiders that take off from the USS Hornet in these B-25 uh, Mitchell bombers uh, to um, strike back at the Japanese empire. And he watches from a nearby cruiser as these bombers take off one by one and uh, head off to Tokyo uh, to bomb the Japanese capital. So that's, that's quite an introduction into your first wartime uh, combat assignment is to watch this dramatic event in, uh, in American history. Uh, uh, from a, a nearby ship and uh, just gets better after that yeah it's incredible i hadn't read guadalcanal diary before and uh one passage i was struck by here uh it's on page 83 uh it uh, says i sat on the front steps of the shack under the soft white stars and thought that it would be the last night of my life i thought that all in all it had been a good life although it seemed to be ending a little early. <laughs> he says things like that yeah. so dispassionately. Mm -hmm. And I would be scared out of my mind to be in the situations he's talking about in this book. But like, there's so many times where he's just like talking about these life and death scenarios as if it's like, and then I ordered coffee, but it's like right. <laughs> a sniper is shooting at me. And oh my. <laughs> and it is amazing how, how often he, he just barely manages to escape death. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he gets off a shift after uh, a raid on a, uh, a, a, a settlement and uh, the next day or that night uh, after getting off it, the, the ship is, is sunk by, by, by the Japanese mm -hmm. or he leaves a, a position and it's shelled heavily or um, he just uh, he's on a B-17 bomber leaving uh, Guadalcanal to go back to Hawaii to, to write his book. And uh, he has to go along on a surveillance, on a reconnaissance uh, mission. And the, the plane is attacked by a Japanese uh, fighter, but and he has to man a uh, machine gun to, to ward them off. So he's just managing to escape death by a hairbreadth from time to time uh, until finally in Italy, you know, his, his number almost comes up. Um, and he's doing all this while dealing with a very uh, debilitating illness because uh, before he got his job with the International News Service, he learned that he was suffering 
from uh, diabetes, which was a family illness. I think his grandfather had it and is also his father. So he's trying to keep this secret because he wants to go into combat. He wants to uh, report on, on what was happening uh, with the war, go overseas to go along with the troops. And so not only does he have to keep the secret from his employers, mm. uh, but he has to deal with all the ramifications of having diabetes, watching his diet. Uh, although insulin was available at that time, he did not uh, use an insulin regime. He did not take shots. He decided to, uh, you know, kind of monitor his, his diet. And one of the things he did was take along a big case of tin sardines because he couldn't depend upon the, uh, the food that might have been served on, on Navy ships. And he was very wary about what the other correspondents might think and, uh, uh, and uh, was very wary about having his secret exposed. And it really wasn't until he, uh, he was wounded in Italy. And of course, he had to share his condition with the doctors who were working uh, on, his, uh, on him trying to save his life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but going back to just the, uh, you know, the process of, of writing a book, when you, when you start on, on these type of books, uh, do you, how much work do you put in before you tell your publisher, your agent, anyone else about it? Because I've always heard if you work on a nonfiction book, you're not really supposed to write the whole thing before you, you know, show someone else, cause they might want you to do a different, take it, take it a different way. How much work do you put into something like this Richard Trugaskis book before you bring it to someone else? Usually in the past, uh, on a number of my books, including uh, my book on Robert Kennedy's 68 campaign here mm -hmm. in Indiana that was published by IU Press in 2008, what I did was write out a, uh, a proposal. Mm -hmm. uh, you got a proposal with giving uh, information on why you think the book is important, uh, what chapters might be in the book. And usually publishers like to have uh, at least maybe an introduction and a full um, chapter or two uh, to submit. So you submit the, the proposal mm -hmm. with a, a sample chapter and uh, they may or may not, of course, then follow up with a contract for the book. Mm -hmm. Then you go and, and actually do uh, all the writing on the book. I did it a little different for the uh, Trigascus book. Uh, I decided to take a little bit more time and, um, also try to find an agent. So one of the things I learned is that, you know, after you write 17 books, you can finally get an agent. Uh, so, oh, wow. So you did all those without an agent. I did all those. Yeah. Ah. I wrote 17 books with, without an agent. And, Goodness. Uh, I was finally was able to get together. Okay. One. Well, that gives me a little <laughs> hope. <then>. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, how did you find an agent? How do you know who's a good one and how did you approach him? And uh, lucky uh, for me, uh, I, you know, was looking around, uh, in various um, uh, publications about, you know, how do you find an agent mm -hmm. and a name came up that uh, I recognized as working with someone I, I had known and met and uh, through the Bi Biographers International Organization that I'm a member of, mm. uh, a gentleman named Carl Rollison, who had uh, uh, written a number of well-regarded bi biographies over the years. And uh, he had worked with the agent before. So I was able to ask him, uh, you know, what do you think about him? He uh, gave him thumbs up. And so I was able to, uh, to work with uh, uh, my agent, who was a gentleman named Philip Turner, 
mm. has a long history in publishing in New York and, and knows the field very well. Mm. So I was lucky to connect with him. But when I came across this project, one of the things to try to get um, uh, Phil uh, Philip uh, interested in a project was I decided to approach it a little differently instead of writing just you know one chapter. I said, you know, I should probably do more. So uh, I worked on it a, a bit longer and mapped out and actually wrote about eight chapters that I sent him. Um, and uh, he liked them, gave me some suggestions and uh, was able to um, get me a contract with the University of New Mexico Press. And that's when I wrote the rest of the book. But I was able to have a, a large chunk of this book um, finished uh, ahead of time uh, that gave me more time to uh, write uh, the rest of the chapters. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that was COVID uh, helped as well. Yeah, I was going to say being locked didn't down. Have a, <laughs> being locked down was a, was a boon in, in this case uh, because it uh, really gave me a lot of extra time. I have to write uh, projects like this that aren't for my employer. You know, I have mm -hmm. to write them on my own time. Right. Uh, so I had a lot of free time at, at night and, mm. and on weekends and uh, was able to concentrate a, a lot on getting this book done. Well, that's great. Yeah. Those last couple of questions may have just been for me. I don't think my listeners really maybe care about that. Um, but anyway, um, what are you working on next? What's the future hold? What, what kind of books are you looking towards in the future? I'm working on a, a book now that's due here uh, this summer. Um, one of the great things about doing research on uh, people is that you come across subjects that you might want to write about in the future. And that happened mm. with uh, uh, my uh, Trigaskis book, uh, he had, um, after World War II, um, decided to get back into the war correspondent game and uh, went to Vietnam early on mm. during America's involvement in the early 1960s and had some uh, run-ins with some of the young Turk correspondents who were there, including uh, David Halberstam. Mm -hmm. And so that got me interested in uh, looking at... Uh, the correspondents who were covering the war early on uh, during that period. And a gentleman I, uh, I came across uh, named Malcolm Brown really intrigued me. Uh, he was the Saigon bureau chief for the Associated Press. Uh, joined, went to Vietnam in 1961, uh, was uh, there with people like Neil Sheehan and David Halberstam, who were his comp competitors in getting uh, stories uh, about uh, American advisors and helping out the uh, Arvin army, it's South Vietnamese army. It was there for the big Buddhist crisis in 1963. And uh, Brown was the uh, um, journalist who took the famous photograph of the Buddhist monk who uh, self-immolated, mm -hmm. uh, who set himself on fire in protests against the uh, ZM government at that time. Uh, during the, the Buddhist uprising uh, in the spring of 1963. And so I was just intrigued. That's one of the iconic photographs of the you know, Vietnam experience. Mm -hmm. I ranked that alongside, you know, the uh, uh, sh famous shot of the uh, Salve Vietnamese police chief who shoots the mm -hmm. suspected Viet Cong in the head, it, right. head offensive. And then the young girl whose village is mistakenly bombed uh, napalmed mm -hmm. by the South Vietnamese Air Force, you know, running naked down the yep. street. And so those three images to me kind of 
come to my mind when I think about the Vietnam War. So I decided to write about Brown, you know, how he came to, uh, you know, be in Saigon, uh, his journey at, as a young reporter uh, from uh, writing in the United States for a small newspaper in New York, getting uh, on at the Associated Press and then being sent uh, to, um, to South Vietnam and uh, his experiences there, uh, uh, you know, with our involvement early on in the war and how he came to get that, that photo that, uh, you know, really mm. first, I think, captured people's attention and got them thinking, you know, you know, where's Vietnam and why are we there perhaps? Mm -hmm. So I'm right. working on that right now. Have you ever thought of writing fiction? <sighs> I've thought about I prefer uh, what I call factual writing. Uh -huh. um, I'm not very good with dialogue. If See, I that's did, my problem too. I don't know. Yeah. Like as a journalist, it just, it, it boggles mm -hmm. my mind that these people can just manufacture dialogue make I up just, conversations yeah, right? i can't get it look <laughs> the only thing that would might intrigue me uh would be uh writing some kind of a mystery book mm, uh okay I'm, I'm a big fan of of mysteries of picky uh robert parker's work uh i i love martin cruz smith's uh, uh arcady renko series the russian detective and so i've always thought that you know writing trying to find uh a character uh, kind of an investigative character who's either work for the police or work alongside the police mm. as a, a private investigator or something like that right. might be something I'd be interested in. But um, I keep coming up with these other uh, nonfiction book projects yeah. that take all my time. No, it doesn't sound like you got any uh, shortage of that for sure. Yeah. Um, but, uh, well, hey, thank you for taking all this time to talk to me tonight. I really do appreciate it. Uh, one question I do ask before we go at the end here is, what music have you been listening to lately? Haven't really been uh, listening to a lot of music. Uh, I find that sometimes it uh, breaks my concentration mm -hmm. when I'm doing my writing. But there's time to time um, I do listen to music when I'm writing about a particular time period. Hmm. I know that when I was writing the uh, Trigascus book, I listened to a lot of big band music of the time period from right. the 1940s. That kind of got me in, in, in the mood uh, to write uh, about, uh, you know, set me back and got me, I think, my mind uh, interested in that period and, and got me in the mood, so to speak, as Glenn Miller would say. So, mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of those were, were instrumentals. And I find if I'm going to do writing that uh, uh, instrumentals are the best to listen to mm -hmm. maybe some classical music from time to time. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Absolutely. I guess I should be listening to some Credence if I'm writing about uh, oh, yeah. the 1960s. We should be listening to Credence no. anyway. There's no That's reason true. not to. <laughs> Big fan of Credence. Oh, 100%. Um, well, hey, thank you again for, for taking the time. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. I uh, obviously have more reading to do now that I, I know how many books you've written. So. <laughs> well, always glad to talk to, uh, to a fellow ex-reporter. Ex Are you still... Uh, yep, or, I'm the okay. editor of the Wabash Plain Dealer right now. Yep. So still in the field. I'm oh yeah, I'm still in the in the trenches, I guess you might say. But um, <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks a lot and uh, have a good night. I'll talk to you soon. Rob, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye bye. bye.
Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, RSS, and now Spotify. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Also, if you want to call or text the show for any reason, the number is 317-674-3547. Until next time.